Please be seated. I think it's always um, sort of like a cold shower to spend time with um, not even just the biblical patriarchs, but uh, so many of the biblical figures. In fact, I'm not sure we can really find a heroic biblical figure except perhaps Jesus. Every other figure, um, they all have feet of clay at least. And even more, they are almost immediately recognizable at any point in history in any society. They reveal so much to us of the human condition. And I think that's especially true with Jacob, but it's not only true of Jacob. It's true of Abraham. Uh, it's true of, of everybody. Imagine a set of origin stories that are so constructed as to anchor us even more in the complexity of the human condition and at the same time absolve us from a sense of smug pride that we're better than. That's the Bible. That's not always the way that we read the Bible, but that's the Bible. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we pray that you would take the words of my mouth, all of the meditations of our hearts, transform them into your living word to us both individually and collectively so that you would indeed prove yourself to be with us working with us in all of our individual and corporate complexity, and yet faithful to your commitments and promises to us. We pray this in the strong name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This quote I'm going to share from David Brooks, the New York Times journalist, is even more important to me. Uh, some of you will know that... Uh, David was caught in a wild exaggeration um, a few months ago. And uh, so with that in mind, listen to what I will share with you right now. David Brooks, in his book, Road to Character, says, about once a month, I run across a person who radiates an inner light. These people can be in any walk of life. They seem deeply good. They listen well. They make you feel funny and valued. You often catch them looking after people, and as they do, their laugh is musical and their manner is infused with gratitude. They're not thinking about what wonderful work they're doing. They're not thinking about themselves at all. When I meet such a person, it brightens my whole day. 
but I confess, as David, I have a sadder thought. It occurs to me that I've achieved a decent level of career success, but I have not achieved that. I have not achieved that generosity of spirit or that depth of character. A few years ago, I realized that I wanted to be a little bit more like these people. And I realized that if I wanted to do that, I was going to have to work harder to save my own soul. Now, despite David's sort of poetic, hyperbolic ending there, that is technically, theologically problematic about saving your own soul, we get the idea of what he's talking about. Multimillionaire, TV personality, world famous, but here confesses a quest for wholeness. He confesses to his readership that he doesn't have what he sees in those other people. And that he desperately wants that. The quest for wholeness. Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg in these passages about uh, Jacob uh, that span several chapters says, in his dream at Bethel, um, the first time he was at Bethel, Jacob heard God say, I will bring you back to this land. And on waking, he had vowed his response to the promise. That vow we went over with the children. If God remains with me, if he protects me, and if I return safe. And that safe word there in Hebrew is in shalom which means much more than intact. But it does mean intact. It means soulfully intact, not divided, not scattered, not frazzled. If that happens, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone that I've set up as a pillar, the Ebenezer, shall be God's abode. In his vow, Jacob had added, in peace, shalom, safe, to the words of God's promise. His concept of return involves this idea of wholeness. And as much as we can sort of laugh at this vow sort of being you know, this divine prenuptial, we get what Jacob means because this is what we all, I believe, are in search of. We are in search of that wholeness amidst a world that fragments us. But the great threat to our soul is not outside of us, it is within us. According to the Jewish interpreters, when one is in trouble, one promises to give oneself of one's real resources to God. 
if he will act to save one's life. I can still remember times in my life where I would get myself into a perceived jam and have that moment of conversion. Oh, Lord, (laughs) if you help me pass this test. And, you know, I had to work that one because I took the test, but I had to reason since God is outside space and time, he could still correct the sin of mine on the test or at least give the professor a heart attack because that was the grade that mattered, right? You know, um, then I will do whatever. And usually that whatever conformed to a particular heroic ideal of what I had that a really committed Christian would do. Have you been there? When one is in trouble, one promises to give oneself of one's real resources to God. We could retranslate that insight of the rabbis to say one does that with the medical community. When we are in trouble medically, all of a sudden, nothing seems like too much to give. All of this in the ancient world was sort of the the sense of the temple. And so in the temple, the animal sacrifice, the money allocated to the holy temple was not only real, it was also metaphoric, even metonymic. It was a displacement for the actual person. And so, sometimes vows were placed next to temple sacrifice in order to, well, to be able to borrow on God's blessing with a promise then to deliver. Imagine how different it would be if we showed up at the emergency room and had to give cash before treatment. And so in Deuteronomy we read, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not put off fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will require it of you and you will incur guilt. What is it that at that moment of crisis, the money, the gift, the amount seems absolutely worth it. And then after we experience release, we look at this and go, oh my gosh, I should have gone to Kmart or whatever place is still in business. And then some really sort of stinking thinking develops um, because historically, this whole temple thing is actually sort of the type of religion that human beings come up with. And there are always middlemen and middle women who will profit off of that, who sort of go with it, right? So the idea is that if we don't keep on giving 
to the temple and keeping the sacrifices going, then we will be disappointing God and God will turn off the spigot of blessing. Does that sort of make sense? And so in our scriptures, God intervenes all over the place. The one text that came to me this morning is Psalm 50. If I were hungry, says God, would I not tell you? I mean, sacrifice actually in the ancient world was barbecue. I'm going to tell you if I'm hungry. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, of connection, and pay your vows to the Most High. Call on me day and night, and I will deliver you. So there's something important about the agreement that one makes, the promise, the vow, and fulfilling it, but it's not really connected with the thing in and of itself. Does that make sense? It's not that the importance of fulfilling the vow with regard to the temple is that God actually even likes sacrifice. In other words, the vow has nothing in the end to do with God. Nothing to do in the end with some type of geometry, theological geometry. It has everything to do with us who make the vow. It has to do with our own soul. Perhaps that's why Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, again, you've heard it said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows that you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more that comes from this is from the evil one. Perhaps this is because, on the one hand, only a fraction of our thoughts and feelings are ever in our awareness at any one moment. And so we are conflicted. And we often focus exclusively on those feelings that are most favorable and less threatening to our sense of well-being. Most likely when we show up at the emergency room and we sign the sheets and agree to pay whatever ungodly price will be, um, a, you know, it will cost us for treatment, it's the monkey brain in us that's thinking. It's the fight or flight. And we're not completely integrated at that point. Going back to this idea of an elder, however, Richard Rohr says, an elder has a capacity of soul that allows one to patiently understand things. And the key is that the elder has dealt with the dark side within, the Jacob within, within. Disappointment, betrayal, 
abandonment, failure, and rejection. Now here's the great irony, right? If I just put on the signboard for this week, come on Sunday as we face disappointment, betrayal, abandonment, failure, and rejection, that wouldn't be very good marketing, would it? And yet, are we going to get anywhere as a people without facing those things? And that's why David Brooks looks to the elders who have been able to face it, to, if you will, wrestle with it and emerge integrated. But on the other hand, as Nicholas Epley, a professor of behavioral science at the University of Chicago School of Business, notes, breaking a promise hurts, and yet exceeding a promise doesn't seem to help. This is the most interesting thing to me in the world. Um, Epley did a number of studies, and I don't think it's just a Chicago thing. It probably would work in Spokane, too. But when people would break a promise, it injured the person and the relationship significantly. Not irrecoverably, and certainly as Christians, we have a wealth of commitments, confession, forgiveness, reconciliation, to follow when those things happen. But a broken promise significantly hurt a relationship. But a promise that was met even at two or three or four times fourfold, eh, it wasn't any better than a promise just met straight up. So it's not about stuff. What is it about? In the Midrash, the Jewish interpreters, they will talk about checking ledgers. Checking ledgers. And I think that's their way of doing self-examination. They say making a vow creates a sacred, dangerous reality. To delay fulfilling a vow is not so much a moral issue as it is a question of disturbing an essential balance. One way that we could think about this, my hunch, is that when promises are unfulfilled, what that disrupts in relationship is trust. They go on, like going on a journey unaccompanied Right? It's, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget. I was in a gym working out, and um, this was back when Pam was driving, and I looked at my phone and I pushed a button. I could tell exactly where Pam was because we had an alarm that also let you know the geolocation. And the person next to me said, Oh my gosh, what's that? And I said, Well, here, this is what it is. I explained it. And he just had this look of panic on his face. <laughs> because he didn't want anyone knowing where he was going. So the rabbis say 
you have to check your ledger when you go on a journey unaccompanied. You have to check your ledger when you sit in a house that's about to collapse. I think that's an interesting one. And you need to check your ledger when the forces of chaos are about to attack. Take a moment, think about the first time you experienced a broken promise, probably from a family member. And think about the chaos. Now again, right, the whole purpose of these biblical people that are far from perfect and very conflicted is to reflect who we are. And the whole reason why we believe that love comes through grace and confession and reconciliation and forgiveness is because none of us do this perfectly. But just remember that feeling of broken trust and how in some ways that is world-crushing. Language has the power to create such marginal, sacred, and dangerous realities. In making a vow, one constructs an image of an intended future and thereby opens a Pandora's box of conflicts and resistances, fears and fantasies, it opens up the Pandora's box of one's inner being. Think back to that moment when a promise wasn't kept and think about how you began to reevaluate, maybe even panic, over who that person was and who you were in relationship to that person. God said to Jacob, get up. Go to Bethel, settle there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau 20 years ago. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves. Jacob and his family have been hedging their bets. Change your clothes. Let's go up to Bethel, and I'll make an altar there. Now, on the way, and you'll thank me that we're not going to go over this today, but Jacob encounters anything but an easy path. There are Lots of problems. There are problems that would slay the hearts of all of us. The problems are real, anticipated, and tragic, involving Lot and Esau and Dinah. The rabbis who look at this passage insist that the root of all of these things is the problem in Jacob of delay. That dangerous space of unawareness that separates the vow from fulfillment. The danger of delay. Of delay. What causes delay? 
In making a vow, one experiences one's identity, one's ability to see and construct future. But consciously to intend an act, an act of closure in particular, and then to feel oneself incapable of making good on that intention is to be plunged into a radical position of self-despair. I know it's a political trope, but in some ways, the delay in Jacob, I think, is what it means to lead from behind. I think it's an issue of not risking vulnerability and failure. It's a type of protectedness. So characteristically then, Jacob leads from behind. He is the thinker, the one who projects out images and words, the director behind the scenes. So Jacob suffers literally and figuratively from a crippling sense of belatedness. Now unusually, I want to ask you right now to remember something when we have our moment of silence, maybe to jot down. But I think it would be helpful to think about our own leading from behind, our own sense of belatedness. What have we promised to God, promised to ourselves, promised to others that we are slow in fulfilling, and why? What is, what is going on within us? This is Jacob's dilemma. At the core, what cripples him is the sense actually generationally of his father's crippling, of Isaac, in the branding moment of his life when he was bound hand and foot. Jacob, in his delay, has bound himself. in spite of the freedom and energy he expresses in love and work during the years away from his father's house, he remains profoundly absorbed by his father's trauma. This is a narcissistic wound. This is the wound that keeps on giving generationally, even if it looks different from generation to generation. Jacob's womb looks different than Isaac's wound, but it's the wound that leads from behind that delays. So in 20 years in Padam Aram, in Syria, in the course of which Jacob amasses wives and children and servants and cattle and sheep and gold and silver, are years that in his perception the presence of God had left him. In his perception, in his delay, there was no reason to fulfill a vow to God because it was all about him. It was all about him. But somehow in our passage for today, when God speaks to him in that moment, in that moment after 20 years of it all being about him, 
he's able to recognize that they should go, that he should make good on his vow. He should do it not out of duty, but for relationship. That this relationship with not only his immediate family, but with his brother Esau, and with his dad Isaac, and with his God, are more important than staying put in his wealth, in his control, in the clarity of the smallness of his world of ability. And somehow what he realizes is that the God who answered me in the day of my distress has actually been with me everywhere I have gone. That's the realization, if we are blessed to have it, that unfreezes our delay and allows us to fulfill our vows. And this is the gospel. Because again, our vows are not about duty. They're about becoming the people God created us to be and the people in relationship that we so desperately, desperately need to be. Amen.